came in, and truly for three months we have been waiting on the Lord, recognizing that there is a unique and special ministry of God's Spirit as we gather together, and we join our hearts together, and our voices together, and we hear together the ministry of God's Word. As I was thinking about um, our gathering this morning, you recognize that this virus is a real thing. And in that light, there is some measure of risk for us just gathering here this morning. And for those that maybe feel a greater risk, they're going to stay at home, which is right for them to do. But I was considering down through the years, the generations, how often the church of Jesus Christ has faced risk in just gathering together. Risk of life, persecution. Even today, there are other nations where the church has to gather in secret because of the dangers that are upon them. And in some measure, you and I are feeling a little bit of that today or as we have in the past three months with this very unique pandemic that we're facing. And again, it is a reminder that God is faithful. We wait for him and he ministers to us and he will not let us down. Let's start by praying together, if you would. Father, we do want to take a moment and give a special recognition to you for your faithfulness, your glory, your love and grace that has been poured out on our lives through Christ Jesus, our Savior. A love that continues to minister to our hearts and our minds and our souls, preserving us, caring for us, nurturing us, and keeping us bound together as brothers and sisters, children of the living God, adopted into your family. We are held together in this present life Father, we know we will be held together for all eternity. We are yours, and we give you thanks. Thank you for allowing us to be together here this morning. We pray for those that are at home that you would minister to their needs, protect and watch over them as well. And even though they're parted from us in this way, we pray that they will feel by your Spirit connected to this body. We look for the day when we can again safely gather together as one, But Father, we do wait on you and your provision of mercy and grace. You are faithful. We praise you for that. Minister to us now through your spirit and by your word. Allow me to speak clearly and well on the things that are before us in your scriptures. But Father, we want to have spiritually open ears to hear all that you would prepare for your church this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Before I begin in our text this morning, I do want to say a special thank you for three months We have been dependent on Aaron's work back there with the camera and all the technical stuff. Getting services into your homes has been his duty. And Don has been taking care of much of the sound complications that we've struggled with. We have a lot of old equipment here, and it's been quite a challenge. So I'm grateful for our techie people and for Stephen and the music people that have been willing to gather together here and bring music into your home. This, these are all things I cannot do. I cannot do the techie stuff. I can't do music for the life of me. Rod and Olivia have blessed us several times with special music. Haven't you enjoyed that ministry as well? And our deacons, they've come in and set up the sanctuary with Christian, and they're serving us here now. So thank you for each of you that have been serving and taking care of these other things for us. It's a blessing to be part of this church. I am in John chapter 8, so please join me. If you're at home, I trust you've downloaded the note sheet. It will help guide you along where I'm going to go in this text this morning. We've been working our way through John 8 and seeing the conflict 
that Jesus was facing from the religious rulers, the Pharisees in particular. And I want to start in reading verse 30 down through verse 36 of John chapter 8. So you can join me there. As he, Jesus, spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. In this particular passage, and there's much more to be said, as you can tell from Jesus' words down through the remaining verses, there's much more to be said on this subject of freedom. And I would guess that many of us here today see ourselves as what would be regarded as conservative Christian Americans. And this characterization, you know, today is not highly respected in our present culture. But along with that comes often the moniker, God and country. That's something we hear a lot and maybe even use a lot. Or faith and freedom. There are books and pamphlets written with that kind of heading or title. And within that kind of moniker or expression, there are a couple of values that we appreciate. Number one, we appreciate our God. We have faith in our God through Jesus Christ. We recognize that. We also recognize the country that we're blessed to live in that allows us liberties and freedoms. It characterizes our constitutional form of government. And in some respects, we as believers recognize the influence of Christianity on the foundation of this nation. So we hear expressions like God and country, faith and freedom. I know that there are many out in our American culture that would echo those things who perhaps don't have a genuine faith in God and yet they will identify themselves as Christian, or they might echo along with this, yes, faith and freedom, God and country. And I know that many of us truly appreciate these qualities, and we are grateful to God for what He's allowed us to enjoy as Americans. But the picture of America's side here, faith and freedom in Scripture has a profoundly different meaning for true believers. Rather than the Christian faith and our American liberties being our greatest blessings, we know that our faith in Christ has brought us into a spiritual liberty, a spiritual freedom that far exceeds any national joys that we may have in living as Americans. And you're going to observe from our text, I trust by now, that the Jews that Jesus was talking to, those people that he was speaking to, had the same mindset that many of us today have as American Christians, God and country. They're right there with Jesus, at least as they perceive Jesus talking to them. We have Abraham. We have our lineage. We have Israel. They saw that national independence as they saw it. And yet Jesus was speaking to them with different language, wasn't He? He was speaking in a spiritual sense of faith and freedom. In this portion of John 8, there are two dominant themes that emerge within the debate that Jesus had with the Pharisees, and it moves into a discussion with these Jewish people. And those two themes are truth and freedom. 
John continues to build on man's necessity to believe in Jesus Christ in the writing of this gospel account. But what Jesus articulates here in verses 30 down through verse 36 is that what men must believe is the truth found in His Word and it is through faith in His truth that true freedom is found. And for this reason, I would like to examine this passage in two parts. The first this morning will be an examination of discipleship. And under this heading of discipleship, Jesus is going to define what true faith produces. This is what faith looks like in answer to those people in verse 30 that are saying, yes, we believe. The second part of our study, and that's going to be in two weeks, because next week is Father's Day. The second part of our study will consider what it means to experience freedom in Christ. And you'll observe that as Jesus spoke to the Jews here in the temple, they had a very similar idea of freedom with their national point of view as do many of us as Americans. So what Jesus had to say to them, and to us as well, is critical to our understanding, number one, of faith, believing in Christ, and number two, what it means to be free in Christ, what true freedom looks like. This morning, we're going to begin then with an examination of discipleship. And here Jesus shows that real faith makes real disciples. To be a disciple doesn't give you faith, but real genuine faith makes real disciples. Verse 30 appears to serve as something of a transition in John's account of this scene in the temple. You recall from verse 20 that Jesus was teaching in the temple... The Pharisees heard what was going on. They move in to intercept and confront Jesus and attempt to disrupt his message to the people. Yet their confrontation of Christ gave to him an opportunity to preach more of himself and man's need for his saving work. As this debate continues, the people that are in the temple are taking in the words of Jesus, hearing the debate, hearing the conflict, and it appears that many are starting to believe what Jesus is saying. Now, our text does not tell us if these so-called believers in verse 30 are Pharisees or the bystanders or the onlookers. But it appears to me, and this is just my speculation, since it says that many believed, we're probably not talking about the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees throughout the rest of the chapter continue their direct assault against Jesus Christ. But we need to take a moment and consider what is meant by this belief in verse 30. We also need to understand that Jesus discerns that these people, whoever they are, whether the Jews or the Pharisees, they're grappling with faith at this point. They're working through this idea of believing this newcomer, Jesus of Nazareth, and what he's saying, because it appears to be true. He seems to know what he's talking about. And therefore, they're identifying with him in some measure. And therefore, Jesus turns from his debate with the Pharisees to focus his words, his attention on these ones that believed. And yet, as I mentioned last week, there seems to be a concern here in regard to the genuineness of their faith. The reality of what they believe. Now, there are varied interpretations from differing scholars as to how we are to understand this conversation. The conflict can be easily seen 
as we look at verse 30, that many came to believe in Christ. Because then, Jesus, verse 31, directs his comments to those ones that have believed. And he explains to them more fully what it means to believe in that it makes disciples that are true. And what follows that is a description of a debate with Jesus where he and his audience seem to be in conflict with one another. So the question has to be asked here. Are these genuine believers? In verse 30. And this is not the first time that we have faced this conflict, is it? The end of chapter 2. We saw the same thing. And the language of John here in chapter 8 and again in John chapter 2 would lead us to believe as Christians here this morning that these are genuine believers. After all, it says in verse 30, they were believing in Him, in Christ. You go back to chapter 2, the end of the chapter. They were believing in His name. If you went up to somebody and had a conversation with them and you talked about your faith and you asked them, do you believe in Jesus? Oh, I believe in Christ. I believe in His name. That says something to us, doesn't it? Because to believe in the name of Christ is to believe in all that He is, all that He worked in salvation. And yet Jesus, chapter 2, knew their hearts. And He would not fix Himself to these ones because they were not genuine in their faith. So to read here in chapter 8 that these ones believed in Him does not necessarily mean these are genuine believers. We ran into this conflict in chapter 6 as Jesus presented Himself as the bread of life and He declared, You must come and partake of Me. Eat of My flesh and drink of My blood. And the disciples of Jesus, the followers of Jesus, grumbled among themselves about this. And then we read that Jesus told them, look, you cannot come to me in faith unless the Father grants it. And what happened next? Those disciples, those followers of Jesus turned from Him and it says they walked with Him no longer. John has given us a picture of this conflict of would-be believers before. We're going to see it again in chapter 12. But John 8 does the same for us. This passage identifies a true disciple of Jesus by their walk of faith. And verses 31 to 32 have some of the most profound declarations in them of what it means to be a real follower of Christ. From this, we can discern that John not only wanted to call people to believe in Christ, but he felt it necessary under the pressing of the Holy Spirit to identify what unbelief looks like as well. This morning I want to start verse 31 as Jesus responds to these would-be believers in verse 30 with the walk of a true disciple. And this is where Jesus begins to unpack what it means to believe. Where Jesus turns to those who came to Him and those that were saying, yeah, we believe in Him. And He speaks to that faith. In verse 30, We're not told what it meant when it says many came to believe in Him. How did these ones come to believe? Is this coming a reference to a decision of the heart and will? Did these ones open their mouths and confess they're now believing in Jesus as He's proclaimed Himself to be? We're not told. But the obvious point of the passage 
is that these people made some profession of faith in Christ. They made some profession. They believed Jesus. Now, in our day, there are many evangelistic efforts that might suggest that coming to believe is indicated by a raising of the hand at an invitation at the end of a gospel service. Some might suggest that they prayed the prayer, referring to a convert praying to receive Christ. For others, coming forward and an altar call may be an indication of coming to believe in Jesus. And I don't argue that those outward expressions, those outward signs may be a genuine response of belief in the heart. But merely raising a hand, coming forward at an altar, are not in and of themselves true faith, nor is merely repeating a prayer at a gospel invitation. We must be clear on this point. R.C. Sproul, and I gave you a few blanks in your outline that you might want to jot down, but he put it this way that helps us to understand what is taking place in this conversation here in John 8. He wrote that it is not a profession of faith that saves. It is not a profession of faith that saves. It is the possession of faith that saves. Our possession of faith, a genuine faith, will call us to make a profession of faith. But to simply profess Christ as your Savior does not save you. It is the possession of faith. There are a great many people, even in our nation, that make a profession of faith, that claim to be Christian, who do not actually possess true faith. What our text indicates as even a person's claim to believe does not affirm a genuine saving faith. And this is why Jesus spoke as He did. He witnesses these ones, either professing Him, professing faith in Him, verbally, audibly, or else He perceived in His heart that they were believing, as we see in John chapter 2. We're not told how Jesus perceived their faith, but he knew what was going on. Perhaps he heard these ones talking among themselves, saying, well, Jesus is making a pretty credible argument here in regard to himself. I tend to believe what he's saying. And Jesus overhears this, or perhaps again he discerns the heart. But he has to address this. You say you believe in me. Let me talk to you about what it means to truly believe and what result that true faith will have on you. Because a true faith will make a true disciple. That's how he addresses it, verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed Him, if you continue in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine. This follows what Jesus has already taught in verse 12, doesn't it? He is the light of the world, he said. And he who what? Follows me. Will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There Jesus provoked interest in himself as the light of the world. You want to be found in Christ? Walk with Christ. Follow Christ. If you want to say you truly believe, it means you're truly a disciple. And as we discussed back in our study of verse 12, following Jesus is used synonymously with believing in Jesus. As we saw from John 12 and verse 46, a disciple of Jesus is one who follows His light. 
So when Jesus speaks of a true disciple of his, he means a person who listens to him, learns from, from him, so as to walk in his light. Two words communicate this reality in a disciple of Christ. And we have to focus our attention on those two. The first of those is continue. The second is word, logos. Because here Jesus begins to unpack what true faith, what believing in Him constitutes. Continue, the word continue. It's the evidence of a true disciple. It's not the means of becoming saved. It is the evidence that one is a true disciple of Christ. And therefore He says, if you believe, you continue. Meaning that the genuine follower of Christ is the one who will continue with Christ. And the word continue here is the very familiar word in the Gospel of John, the word abide. Abide. John uses this word multiple times throughout this Gospel narrative, but it is most impactful from John 15. I would like you to jump ahead to John 15 and verse 5. Because in here, Jesus gives to us a picture or a description of what it means to continue in Him. To abide in Him. He gives us the picture of the vine and the branches. He's the vine. And if we're truly believers, we are fixed to that vine as a branch growing out of Him. And notice the true disciple that abides in Him will bear fruit. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides. That's that word continue. He who abides in me and I in him. He bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing. That's an amazing declaration of faith, isn't it? One author put it this way. This is a co-participatory existence. I am abiding in Christ. He is abiding in me. That co-participatory existence. That author went on to say the being of the believer, the inner man of the believer is determined or regulated by Jesus. I'm feeding off of Him daily, ministered by Him. And it's the depiction of an intimate relationship this author wrote. It's not just a head knowledge that we're talking about. It's not just a mental agreement to say, I believe in Jesus. If you say you believe in Him, it means you continue. You abide. You're connected to Him. And this idea of abiding or continuing describes not only a life-giving attachment to Jesus Christ that bears fruit for Him and from Him, but it also describes, and this is important, an endurance or a perseverance with Him. To continue means what? To continue. To abide in Christ means we will continue to abide in Him and He will continue to abide in us. Last week we looked at Matthew 13 where Jesus explained to His disciples why He speaks in parables. And that followed one particular parable. If you glance back at Matthew 13, it's the parable of the sower and the seed. And in that description, in that story, Jesus used three kinds of soils to describe where God distributes the gospel. The first of those soils is the roadside dirt. Hard and indifferent to the gospel. People are traveling by. Some seed spills by the side of the road. And the description here is of those who openly are unbelievers. They don't really care about the gospel. 
They're not interested in Christianity. They make no profession of faith. The second soil was the rocky soil. Not much dirt there. The seed falls there. It takes root. It sprouts but withers immediately. And this illustrates the person who received the Word of God, the Gospel with joy, but when trouble and persecution came, they fall away quickly. The third of those soils was the thorn and weedy soil, infested with other plants that suck out the nutrients and the seed falls in this person's hearing. They embrace it. And for some season, for some time, they walk in that supposed so-called faith. But the cares of the world, the deceptive pleasures lure that one away from the truth and no fruit is produced. Those first three soils are a description of an unbeliever. But two of those three had made professions of faith. What was the problem there that Jesus identified? They didn't endure. They didn't persevere. They made a profession. But nothing came of that. It's the fourth soil, the good soil, that pictures the true believer who receives God's word by faith and they bear fruit. And each one of those plants bared or was bearing a different quantity of fruit. But they were bearing fruit nonetheless. It speaks to the true believer who doesn't fall away but continues to be productive in the things of Christ. Why are they productive? Because they continue to abide in the vine who's feeding them. Nurturing. Providing the nutrients that are necessary for life. To abide or continue describes the true believer who perseveres in the faith, or what we might call, doctrinally speaking, the perseverance of the saints. And those who persevere in the faith do so because God preserves those who are His own. The reason that we as true believers persevere is not because of our inward disciplines or strength or our solid commitment or the strong faith that we have. The reason that we persevere is because God preserves us. We see this in passages like John 6 and verse 37. All that the Father gives to me, Jesus said, will come to me. And those who come to me, I will certainly not cast out. The powerful ingredient in that faith is what? Jesus. He's going to hold on. Philippians 1 and verse 6, Paul said, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it. What Jesus starts, he will finish. But perhaps the most reassuring passage in God's Word regarding believers and their security and their perseverance in abiding in Christ is John chapter 10. A beautiful expression of assurance to the true believer and the perseverance of a genuine faith. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Believer, does that give you assurance this morning? Not because of the strength of your faith, but because of the power of the Savior to hold on to those that belong to Him. If you're in Christ, you're His. 
And the greatest assurance that we can have that we will always be His is that nobody can take you out of His hand. And then to doubly reinforce that, Jesus said, the Son and the Father are one. And nobody can take Him out of my Father's hand. In other words, Father and Son have the same grip upon your faith. It reminds me of that song that we have sung in the past here, He will hold me fast. That's the song of redemption for the believer. It isn't the strength of my determination to believe. It's the strength of my Savior to hold on to me. And if it wasn't for that, I can guarantee you, I'd be the kind of guy that fell away time and again. And a perfect time for me to fall away is this past three months when I don't have this fellowship to minister to me. It teaches us that true believers in Christ, the sheep that actually belong to Him, continue following His voice because they're held by a strong Savior. And to further guarantee it, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. We're holding on to you, both of us, by the strength of our grip. From our Scripture reading this morning, we see that the Apostle John had to deal with many who claimed to be Christian. They entered the church community and for a time they were recognized as fellow believers, and it appears that they had some kind of teaching influence within the church. But in time they drifted away from the fellowship because, as John writes, they never really were of us. They were against Christ. He says they were antichrist who began to teach deception about Jesus Christ. Even today, we see many who make professions of faith in Christ who don't continue to abide in Christ. We witness many today who once gave testimony to Christ, but don't persevere in the faith with Christ. And years later, after living a life apart from Jesus, many of them will still claim to be Christian or a believer because at one time they made a profession of faith. I'm not talking this morning just to genuine believers. I hope I may be talking to some that have been in that position where they once made a profession of faith in Christ but haven't lived in that profession. Perhaps as you're hearing my words or our testimony this morning, the Spirit of God will provoke in your heart a desire to cry out to God. Say, Give me that faith. I want to be one of yours. And the promise we have from Jesus is that He turns no one away that comes. He turns no one away. Many make profession of faith, but they don't continue to walk in faith. In the mind of Jesus, in the words of Jesus, this is not what it means to be a true believer. Because true disciples abide. The second word that is very important to this short and brief statement of Christ here is His Word. It is important that we understand what it means to abide, to continue. But that in itself is not enough, is it? It's what we continue in. It's what we abide in. What are we holding fast to? Jesus said, if you continue, if you abide in my word, the word of Christ. And again, as we've heard from 1 John 2 this morning, we know that the Apostle John was very familiar with this kind of faith that does not abide in the truth of Christ. It is the kind that says, yes, I believe, 
but in truth it does not hold fast to the teaching of Jesus. And so John wrote to those early believers in 1 John that certain false professors, certain false believers pulled out of the church because they did not hold to the truth of Christ. And he went on to say, John did, I am writing to you because you do know the truth. You know that there is no deception found in God's truth. The liar, John adds, is the one who denies Jesus is the Christ and the Father and the Son, that they are one. To deny the Son is to deny the Father Himself. The false believer in this part of John's letter are those who are openly teaching wrong theology or wrong Christology. And the false believer in this part of John's letter are those who are renouncing their faith. They turned away from their faith. And some might argue, yes, I did profess to have faith in Christ as a child, and I haven't lived at all for Him, but I've never denied Him. I've never spoken those kind of deceptive things about Jesus Christ. But again, if you go back and reread what was read to us this morning from 1 John chapter 2, John points out what a true disciple looks like. A true disciple of Christ will continually abide in His Word. And this is why in his first epistle, John wrote extensively to a steadfast walk of a true believer. He warns, don't get caught up in the pleasures of the world, the things of the world. It'll just pull you away. He exhorts the believers to keep away from lusts and sinful pleasures, the desires of the flesh. Because the one who lives in the will of God is the one that has eternal life. He concluded chapter 2 by affirming the true believer is the one who abides in Christ because he knows that he is righteous. Christ is righteous. And the true believer will attach himself to that vine of righteousness. The one who practices righteousness, John said, is the one that has been born again. So John wasn't only talking to those that were renouncing Jesus Christ verbally in their message. He was speaking predominantly to those that once said, yes, I believe, but their life is filled with sin. They haven't walked with Christ. So John opens his gospel by telling his readers, Jesus Christ is the Word that became flesh. The Word that was in the beginning with God because the Word was God. Jesus Christ is the Word of God. And therefore, the true believer is the one that will continue in the Word. And this moves us ahead in our text to the first part of verse 32. And what I want to draw your attention to is the knowledge of the true believer because Jesus continues in His identification. If you continue in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine and you will know the truth. He is the one who knows the truth about God. The true believer is the one that knows the truth about the salvation of the Son and the redemption that comes to Him through faith. And this may seem like a rather fundamental point to many of us here today, but in the preaching of Christ, it was essential to point to this distinction between faith and non-faith. In the mind of Jesus, this is essential to know when we're talking about belief or faith. We hear very often today that it's not what you believe, it's that you believe. Jesus says just the opposite. 
Oh, it is important what you believe. It's not all that important that you believe. It is important what you believe. But what makes these words in verse 31 and 32 so powerful is that Jesus doesn't stop at this. Taken together, these two verses show us that we're not talking about a person who has a mere academic knowledge about Jesus or even have the correct information about Him. What Jesus says here is that a true follower of Christ abides in His Word and He knows the truth. This is a person that believes in the Jesus of Scripture, which is the Word of Christ. This is the one who knows the truth of Christ, believes the truth, trusts in that truth, and walks by that truth of Christ. As we saw from the Lord's teaching on the vine and the branches from John 15, to abide in Jesus is to find our daily vitality from Him. We draw our spiritual nutrients from Him. And we bear fruit for Him. Knowing the truth then goes much deeper than a mere academic knowledge. To abide in His Word is more than agreeing with His message. We learn from verse 12 that we no longer walk in darkness, but we walk in His light. And we find in His Word the strength, the instruction, and even the correction to keep ourselves from the darkness of sin to be found living in His righteousness and equipped for every good work as we would read in 2 Timothy chapter 3. We abide in His promises, His assurances, meditating on what Christ declares is true, pure, and right, which keeps us from the darkness of anxiety and fear and depression and worry as Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4. In John chapter 17 and verse 17, Jesus prays for His people by saying, God sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. And therefore to know the truth, as Jesus spoke in John 8, to know the truth is to be sanctified by the truth. Being conformed to the image of Christ, set apart in the holiness of the light of Christ. To continually abide in the word of Christ is to be a good student of the truth of His Word. And as the student learns and grows in the truth of God, they're set apart, made more holy in the likeness of Christ. What I'm trying to describe here is much more than a mere academic knowing Jesus. We are immersed in Him. Again, that co-participatory experience where we're feeding off of Christ, feeding off the vine. And He is in us. Paul wrote to the pastor of the church of Ephesus reminding Timothy that the church is the household of God. It is the pillar and support of the what? Truth. The church. And with this we understand that even our fellowship with the biblical church is part of what it means to abide in the Word of Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. It is in the fellowship of the church that we come together for instruction and encouragement of the Word. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul strongly exhorted the pastor, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the Word of truth. Just to be a faithful worker and servant of God means we're feeding off the truth of Jesus. The Word of Christ teaches us what it means to be a diligent worker that God approves of. 
I'd like us to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, because Peter wrote to believers in his second epistle, these opening words in chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1. Just look at the first three verses and observe with me the word knowledge. And understand along as I'm reading that this knowledge is not a mere academic or mental acceptance of things. It's much, much deeper than that. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His glory and His excellence. Do you understand what it's saying there? Our very lives, our existence as Christians is being absorbed through this true knowledge of Christ. Peter wanted these people to know, I'm praying for you, that God would pour out His grace and peace on them so they would grow in the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. Why? Because their very spiritual existence, their spiritual health depended upon it. Everything pertaining to life and godliness, God didn't leave anything out. It's why we preach in the sufficiency of God's Word. It is enough. It's everything we need. And therefore, when we open up our Bibles... We shouldn't just memorize passages so we can say, I memorized John 3.16. We need to know the truth. To live and feed on that truth. Because it has everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. Peter wanted these people to know this. And he continues a few verses down, verse 8 of chapter 1. By saying, you'll never be useless or fruitless in the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll never be useless to God. We're at a point where you're not bearing fruit when you're absorbing yourself in that knowledge. Again, this is far more than academics. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, exhorts the church to be watchful for those that corrupt the truth, who claim to be Christian and are preaching religious stuff at you, that use the word Jesus in it. Be cautious of these ones. And then Peter describes the judgment that God will bring against those who misrepresent His word of truth. Peter then closes his letter of warning with these words to the church. Chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Our knowledge can't be stagnant. When Jesus said, my disciples will know the truth, it means they're continually feeding on the truth, growing in the truth, living off of that truth, practicing that truth. If it's not very clear to us by now, let me emphasize this again with the words of Jesus. A true disciple of Christ must abide in His Word where we come to know His truth in this way. This declaration is vital to us. And I hope we see the essential nature, not only of our private time in the study of God's Word, as valuable as that is, but also in the corporate time that we have in His Word together. 
if the church were to neglect the teaching of theology and doctrine, if we grow weak in our instruction, if we minimize the proclamation of the word of truth, the church is going to become impoverished and its members are going to be spiritually anemic. It's the word of truth that feeds us, that grows us, that nurtures us, that maintains us. And the idea of abiding continually in the Word, where we come to know His truth, is far more than gathering biblical data here. It is feeding us the essential nutrients of a true disciple. And I've emphasized just a moment ago what I want to say again. It is not only coming to us this nourishment through our private time and devotion. It's coming from our corporate times together. In the past three months of our separation, we've been hearing a great deal from our state officials what they feel is essential to keep up and running in our communities. And what is rather clear to many of us is that the biblical church was not and still is not essential in their eyes of unbelievers. And we shouldn't expect it to be. They're unbelievers. They don't see the value of us gathering like this. But the Word of God makes this clear. It is essential for us to be nourished on the Word, even in the corporate gathering. It's what Christ has built His church to be. It is the pillar and support of the truth. And if the church today appears to push the limits of the present guidelines of our governing authorities, it's because we believe the proclaiming of the truth of Jesus Christ is essential. I debated whether or not I wanted to share this or not, but your elders have been meeting for many weeks now, wrestling with these issues of governmental authority and the church's need to be responsive and respectful to those laws. And at the same time over here, recognizing Christ has ordained that His church gather together. And the reality that we must believe God over men. We must obey Him first. And we're in this dilemma here where these two are kind of colliding. And we have to know how do we respond to this? How do, how do we accurately discern these times? I've been in communication with a number of pastors that I've developed friends with. And they're wrestling with these same things. And we're communicating back and forth for the past month and a half. How do we discern what the church is supposed to do when the government says one thing and Christ says another One particular friend for several weeks had been writing me again and again saying, I just feel compelled to ignore the state laws and come together as a church. What do you think? And I'd write him back. And I have to say from my own perspective, if we as a church are going to defy the laws of the government, we need to make sure we're on biblical ground. So we're trying to cooperate. And I shared that advice with him. A week later, He wrote me about this young gal, 28 years old. She'd been drug addicted and all of the attending addictions and sins that go with that. Came to their church, heard the gospel, received Christ, and wanted to be baptized. And then the shutdown happened and she couldn't be baptized. But the desire was there. And over the months we've been communicating back and forth And he got my counsel. He wanted to open the church. And he decided, no, I'm not going to do it this week. The following Saturday, he wrote me a message. He said, Monty, pray for me. Pray for my church. 
this gal on Saturday night ended her life. And her five-year-old boy found her on Sunday morning. And the, the pastor was overcome with guilt. And he tells me the story. Now I'm overcome with guilt because of my counsel. I don't say this because I deny the sovereignty of God here. But I do tell you these things because the ministry of the word through the church is essential. And I recognize that our government doesn't always see that. But I trust you and I, gathering together this morning, and even our folks at home, we understand the importance of the ministry of God's word. It's the thing that nourishes us. It sustains us. It crafts us into the likeness of God's Son. We need it. I need it. A true disciple of mine will continue to abide in my word and the knowledge of my truth. And finally, ending with the last part of verse 32, the blessing of the true disciple. Now this third and final point is we're going to pick up in two weeks. So I'm not going to say much here because we're going to talk much more about freedom. But verse 32 ends... The truth of Christ will make you free. The truth will make you free. This freedom is the blessing of the true disciple of Christ. It is also the condition that we find ourselves in as a result of saving faith. We are free in Christ. And speaking directly to these would-be believers of verse 30, Jesus was confronting a specific conflict within their faith. These would be professing believers apparently agreed to prove of his unity with the Father. They were okay with that. But they were not prepared to submit to his word. They were not fully interested to follow him as a disciple of his. Is this not the condition of so many in our day who claim to embrace Jesus by faith, but who do not want to walk under his lordship? Forgiveness of sin, eternal life, heaven. That sounds wonderful. And many people will be agreeable to that. That sounds attractive. Yes, I'll believe in Jesus. I want my sins forgiven. I want to go to heaven someday. Others actually take, take some kind of comfort in just being attached to religion or a Christian church. It gives them a sense of security. Though they may not have genuine faith either but to yield fully to the Word of Christ, abiding in the truth of Christ, that's another matter altogether for many people. How odd that on this point, these believers, so-called believers, turn. The point, freedom. The minute Jesus said, you can be free in me. That's the point at which they turn. One would think that freedom is a desirable thing to have. And yet when Jesus told these people that the truth about him would set them free, they pull back and they begin to debate with him about freedom and following him. Because these people weren't looking to be free from what they had confidence in and how they lived their lives and what directed their lives. Which is namely their own righteousness. Their own confidence in their ability to keep the law, so long as Jesus spoke about religious things that did not interfere with their lives or that might cause them to be led in another direction, they were willing to believe. But the particular freedom that Jesus offered exposed an unwillingness within this group to be set free from what they held dear. 
There were things that they didn't want to let go of. Namely, their religious beliefs. And what this highlights from our text, and what I wish to end on this morning, is that the gospel of freedom exposes a difference in believing on an intellectual level and believing to the point of trust and full surrender. The subject of freedom makes that distinction between a faith that is just intellectual and a faith that surrenders the will entirely to the Lordship of Christ. There was something in the freedom that Christ offers that calls men and women to give up that which these people did not want to let go of. And right now, our nation is in probably the greatest turmoil that I can ever remember seeing in my lifetime. We're witnessing a loud national protest that is demanding freedom from racism. Others are protesting to gain freedom from what they think of as tyranny of the American establishment, what they call fascism. Some want freedom from the enforcement of laws by police departments. And each of these think that life would be better if they got what they demanded. And all I see is a lot of unhappy, angry people who need freedom from their own slavery to sin. One author writes this, the greatest liberator the world has ever seen is the Lord Jesus Christ. It was to free captive humanity that Jesus came into this world. I can't tell you how many times I've been frustrated, if not angered, by watching the news and what's going on in our nation. But I have to remind myself that these people need to know the truth. They need to understand what real freedom is about. And not many of them will embrace the gospel that we preach. But some of them might. They need to know the one who can truly set them free. They need the freedom that is found in the gospel because only the truth of Jesus Christ can make them free. And you and I are the proclaimers of that truth. You and I are the proclaimers of this freedom. Our world around us desperately needs this kind of freedom. Now just bringing things to a close this morning, I'm quite aware that a passage like this before us, verses 30 to 32 in John 8, likely are going to cause some people to feel very uneasy about what they thought they believed. And I think it's very true that while America has been a voice for the gospel in the past, we've had the freedom to preach gospel uh, to the world around us. What also seems to come from our nation has produced a lot of believers, as we see here in verse 30. Far too many in our culture have made professions of faith, but who have not possessed true faith. So to hear a message like this may cause some to feel uncomfortable, to be sure or unsure of themselves, spiritually speaking, to doubt their salvation. But I would argue that if you truly know the truth about Jesus Christ and what He spoke here, it will only affirm your faith all the more. Some may find themselves doubting, but perhaps that's what they need to experience. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, test yourselves, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. With Paul, this question was answered with the knowledge of Jesus Christ who is within the believer, abiding within the true believer. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. It's on your bulletin. Perhaps each of us need to ask ourselves these kind of three summary thoughts. Does this describe me? Am I a disciple of Christ abiding in His Word? Does my life characterize obedience and submission to His will? Is my life marked by service to Him, righteousness in Him, 
and bearing fruit for Him? Is that what my life looks like? Am I a disciple of Christ that abides continually in His Word? Second, am I a disciple of Christ who knows His truth, eagerly learning and growing in theology and doctrine? Do we delight to know more of Christ? Am I living in that knowledge of truth? And third, does my life portray a disciple of Christ that experiences freedom? Am I living joyfully in that freedom? I'm convinced that angry, unhappy, fearful, and complaining people do not fully understand the freedom of gospel truth. Do I understand this freedom that Christ brings? And if there's some question in your mind this morning, we need to point you to Christ. Look at Him. If we can be of help to you in any way, please don't hesitate to speak to us. Call us during the week. If we can talk about Christ, His gospel of salvation, if we can communicate the assurance that we can have that we belong to Him, we want to do so. But if my words are causing doubt, I don't mean to cause doubt. Unless it should. Unless it should. And if you do doubt, we extend an invitation to you. Come to Christ. Plead with the Father in heaven. Give me this faith to believe. I want to be one of yours. We have the assurance from Jesus himself. He won't be turned away. Let's close in prayer. Our great God in heaven, as believers, we rejoice in the freedom that you have given to us. We are yours. And Father, I rejoice to know that nobody is able to take me out of your hand. So even in describing this stuff of unbelief this morning, it fills my heart with the assurance that I am forever yours. And I know every true believer in here would echo that same reality. Praise God, we are yours. But we pray together for any that might be unsure of that salvation. That they might know the love of God as you sent your Son to die for sin. To set us free from the bondage of sin. To make us free in Christ. Speak to that one. Minister to that one. Draw that heart to yourself. We plead. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.